Coming up this Saturday morning on Gesundheit with Jacobus, don't miss my very important interview with Sally Patchelock. Together with her husband, Dr. Jeffrey Stewart, Sally, an emergency nurse for more than 25 years, co-authored the most comprehensive and nationally recognized book on vitamin B12 deficiency. It is titled, Could It Be B12? An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses. This vitamin, in its correct form, can literally be a lifesaver for many people. Don't be misdiagnosed anymore after you hear Sally Patchelock this Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus, our first hour, as we have a great discussion today with uh, Sally Patchelock, and I am looking forward to that. We are going to be talking about health healing and healthy lifestyles. Gesundheit means health, health or good health. And uh, that's what the name of the show was, Gesundheit with Jacobus. I'm Jacobus Holloway, your host. And we are here talking about vitamin B12 deficiency. As always, when we talk about health healing and healthy lifestyles, the purpose of the show is education, information, and entertainment. We're not here to diagnose, treat, or cure. As always, I recommend that after the show, you contact the person who was on the program or you see a physician of your choice for the best results for your life and or look up more information about the topic at hand. Today, it's going to be real easy because we have, we're talking about a book and I highly recommend that you check out this book today. So here we are. We're talking to Sally Patchelock today. She has been a practicing emergency nurse for over 25 years. She received a bachelor's degree in nursing from Wayne State University. Prior to entering the field of nursing, Sally received an associate's degree of applied science with magna cum laude honors. She was also a licensed advanced emergency medical technician and worked as a paramedic prior to and during nursing school. She has worked in healthcare for a total of 29 years and has cared for thousands of patients. In addition, she is a trauma nursing core course provider, an advanced cardiac life support provider, an emergency nurse pediatric course provider, and a member of the Emergency Nurses Association. In 1985, Sally Patchelock diagnosed herself with vitamin B12 deficiency after her doctors had failed to identify her condition. That's really fascinating because when, as you hear today, what is all connected with a potential vitamin B12 deficiency, it is amazing that uh, Sally dis- discovered this in 1985, and you wonder why do we not know more at this point about vitamin B12 in the common media, let's call it that way, or in most of the books that are written, or the way doctors are talking about this very, very, very important topic. It's going to be a great show. You're going to really enjoy this. As a result, Sally is passionate about the need to educate the public about the dangerous consequences of this hidden and all-too-common disease. Together with Jeffrey Stewart, doctor in osteopathy, she co-authored the most comprehensive book on vitamin B12 deficiency 
The title is Could It Be B12? An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses by Quill Driver Books. And they have been on guests on different shows, radio, TV, and have been mentioned in many magazines. And uh, so there is a lot to talk about. And if you want to learn more, go to the website that is B12 awareness.org b12awareness.org well sally it is wonderful to have you on the program today i appreciate you spending your time with us oh thank you for having me well thank you and i tell you going through this book and using as much time as i had to prepare for the show it is absolutely fascinating the your research is deep your references after every chapter are very thorough your the way you put things into word your little uh, the the highlights the the different colors that you use the grays and everything it makes this book reading for pretty much everybody and a good read so thank you so much for doing that and we have a ton to talk about most important thing is obviously you were diagnosed uh, you diagnosed yourself in 1985. All the research, I'm sure, that came after that, what you learned, you decided more people have this problem, and you decided to write this book. Tell us, actually, what is vitamin B12? Well, vitamin B12 is one of the 13 vitamins our body needs for health and for life. Um, it's critical for the production of red blood cells, so that way it prevents causing anemia. Yeah. Uh, it's vital for the brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves, and nerves of the eye. Yeah. So a B12 deficiency can result in symptoms ranging from severe anemia, which could actually require blood transfusions, or could cause serious and permanent nerve damage because it attacks the brain and the nervous system. Right. Wow, that is, and, and vitamin B12, now there is some confusion about different forms of B12. Uh, I have talked to people that say, well, I just went and had a B12 shot. And uh, when you look at most multivitamins or B-complex vitamins, there is B12 in it, but we have two problems. Most of the time, it is a very poorly absorbed form. And secondly, the amounts that are being given in these vitamins or in the shot are not always adequate. Can you explain what types of B12 are out there today and which ones would be available for the regular consumer to get? Well, the first thing is there's three forms of B12, three forms, and there's like a fourth one that's being out there now of B12 that's available. We typically use, and manufacturers typically put cyanocobalamin in B12. In fact, in all the hospitals, they have cyanocobalamin in injections and high-dose pills. Yeah. Our bodies have to convert cyanocobalamin into the active forms. The active forms of B12 are methylcobalamin or methyl B12 and adenosyl B12 or adenosyl cobalamin. Cobalamin is the technical name for B12. So when we take in cyanocobalamin, our bodies have to convert it. Now, some people can have um, genetic difficulties, liver problems of turning that into the active forms. Okay. So that's, that's one problem. The other problem is if you truly have a deficiency, you need to be taking over 1,000 micrograms, which equals one milligram of B12, because they say there's approximately 1% absorption from an oral pill. Okay. So in a multivitamin, they only give you approximately six 
micrograms of B12 that will never correct a deficiency. Then there's others, there's like say 50 micrograms. So again, it's like putting a teaspoon of water in a built-in swimming pool. You'll never catch up. You'll never treat the deficiency. Right. So you could be thinking that you're taking these supplements and you're doing yourself a, a service and you're correcting your deficiency, but you're not. Mm-hmm. The, the major, the number one reason a person has a vitamin B12 deficiency is because they have some kind of malabsorption problem. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a functioning, healthy gastrointestinal tract. Your stomach is involved in B12 absorption. Yeah. The small bowel, which specifically the ileum. Ileum. Mm-hmm. You need a functioning pancreas. Which is the ileum is all the way at the end of the small intestine, correct? It's the very last part of the small bowel. So people who have Crohn's disease, yeah. um, they have uh, you know, the diseased tissue of the ileum. Plus, if some of them have like surgeries, like resections because of their disease, people have irritable bowel syndrome, any problems with the intestine, those people are going to be high risk for B12 deficiency. So when you really look at the basic pathophysiology of the absorption, once people understand how you absorb B12 and all the steps, then you you, you just realize what people are going to be high risk or deficient of B12. So anybody with... Stomach problems, intestinal problems, liver problems, pancreas, the whole GI system are at risk for vitamin B12 mm. deficiency, and often we find these people are deficient for a variety of reasons. Right. And and that is that is just the ones that have the that already have, let's say, a physical problems. Right. That's just the tip of the iceberg. <clears throat> That's exactly right. So this is a this is a big issue, folks. We're talking to Sally Patchelock, who has written a great book. It's called "Could It Be B12: An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses." There are obviously people who are deficient and they don't know about it because of choices they made in life, or you know, like the vegans and the vegetarians, uh, many times have end up being deficient in their blood. True, because B12 is found naturally only in animal uh, products. Yeah. which would be any kind of meat, poultry, fish, shellfish, dairy, and eggs. So if you are a strict vegan, and even vegetarians long-term, they can over time become deficient or short in B12. They can get low B12 where they start having symptoms, and then it eventually can turn into a severe B12 deficiency. And there are many case reports in medical journals explaining patients where they started having neurological signs and symptoms, and they didn't know what was going on, or a little bit of anemia, and it was strictly caused by their diet. Now, why we're not asking people or patients when they come in about their diet, I think is an oversight, but that is another risk group for B12 deficiency. I see, I see. And then when you think about the stomach, you have to look at there are certain drugs that we take for other diseases. For instance, there's a drug called, a group called proton pump inhibitors, and what those drugs do is it, suppresses the stomach from secreting hydrochloric acid. Mm. They use it for gastric reflux disease, for ulcer disease. And physicians nowadays prescribe those drugs like candy. And what they do is in time, it stops. You need hydrochloric acid to absorb B12. That's one of the several steps. Yeah, it seems to, uh, uh, it, it, it helps the meat to separate it in the meat, in the protein. It helps to take the B12 out. You, exactly. you need a certain you need a certain part of the uh, hydrochloric acid to take that B12 out, else it doesn't 
get, how you call it, separated out for digestion. Right. Absor- okay, cool. Like when you take in meat, which has B12 or whatever products have B12 in it, yeah. we actually have salivary glands that secrete in our protein. That's all right. So you have to have a functioning salivary gland, too, in the mouth. Yes. Then it travels down into the stomach, and then the stomach has cheat cells that produce pepsinogen. And this pepsin um, separates B12 from the meat. Yes. So, And then the parietal cells, the cells of the stomach, produce intrinsic factor. Yes. So you have B12 and our proteins, which then has to attach to intrinsic factor. Mm-hmm. And that happens with the help of the pancreas. Yes. Uh, it produces these enzyme proteases. And when that is attached, it travels down the duodenum into the ileum, and that's where it's going to split, and it can be ready for the body to, to travel it through the, through the ileum to the circulation. And right. there's a transport protein that actually helps that. So people can have transport genetic defects where they have difficulties or inabilities to do that. So it's, it's very complicated. As you see, you have to have the outside source getting in because yeah. we don't make B12 in our body. Right. The stomach has to be able to release the pepsinogen and the hydrochloric acid. So these drugs, if they suppress the parietal cell from secreting hydrochloric acid or intrinsic factor, you are not going to be able to absorb B12. Yes. So we commonly see people are having other risk factors for B12 deficiency, and then they're on a proton pump inhibitor for three or four years, these are drugs like omeprazole, Prilosec, Prevacid. Um, The purple pill. Mm -hmm. Yep, they will Mm -hmm. get, and and so many elderly are on these drugs. And the sad thing is, is many older adults have signs and symptoms of gastric reflux disease because actually they really don't have enough hydrochloric acid. So the little acid that they have, or pepsinogen, we're kind of blocking out. (laughs) Yes. And it, it just it accelerates their B12 deficiency even more. Yeah, and I, I talk to people regularly about this, Sally. Uh, the, when they come in with GERD, high hadal hernia, acid reflux, uh, heartburn, gas, bloating after they eat, we recommend that they do a little test. They take a tablespoon of either Bragg's apple cider vinegar or a tablespoon of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Yeah. Do not mix it with water. You just take it straight in the mouth when you have that symptom. You wait three minutes. After three minutes, if you feel better, that means that your body loves the acid, so it is actually under-acidic, and that caused the symptoms. If you feel worse after three minutes, then you had too much acid. And you're absolutely right, and there are several things that people can do then to avoid that from further happening so that they have, indeed, the best absorption possible in the stomach. And as you say, you're absolutely correct it usually, we're also talking here about, uh, uh, for example, all the calciums that people get uh, as they get older. The, the commercially gr- sold calcium carbonates have a very low absorbability, and they need plenty hydrochloric acid to break down. Now, young people have that, but they don't even think about calcium. So it is the older generation that needs calcium, and they usually don't have enough hydrochloric acid. So it is not a very good source of calcium. Uh, they have a problem with the digestive tract of taking all the protein pump, protein pump inhibitors. And so here we have a, a, a long line of problems that only get aggravated. And, and as we progress with the show today, uh, you're going to explain, we're, we're going to talk, well, you primarily, uh, talk about all the different symptoms that people may experience 
that are all happening because of digestive problems. We don't get the B12. Number one, we don't take enough. Number two, we don't digest what we do take in. And so here we're dealing with a big deficiency in our diet, and it has it is costing the country a lot of money that could oh, have yeah. been easily avoided. And and I know that you say you're working on a on an on, on a proposal to create a B12 awareness month. Yes, um, it September, is uh, We've declared as B12 deficiency awareness month, and we have actually written to senators, congresswomen, and men regarding trying to recognize September annually as B12 Awareness Month. Um, we, it needs to be talked about, and the reason why we need to have a whole month of it is because we are actually wasting billions of healthcare dollars on untreated B12 deficiency. Untreated B12 deficiency is healthcare's dirtiest little secret, and we are injuring millions of people because it causes cognitive decline, fall-related trauma, neurologic injury, disability, poor outcomes. And so not only are we injuring patients, but we are wasting billions of healthcare dollars, which we will explain later how we are doing this. So it's a win-win situation where we should be, this should be a public awareness, which is desperately needed, and we'll be helping the government and our whole entire um, economic system by addressing and treating B12 deficiency. Yeah. Folks, you're listening to Sally Patchelock on Gesundheit with Jacobus. Her book is called Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses. First uh, edition came out in 2005, believe it or not. Uh, she explained to me before the program, it took her three years to get it to the publisher. In that three years, she learned so much more uh, about this that she was already started writing a second edition, which ended up coming out. She added at least 100 pages, which is, we're going to talk about it as well. These are guidelines for physicians, things that they need to know. And the uh, the book, the second edition, which I have in my hands over here, is uh, was came out in 2011, just this last year. And I tell you what, this is what I really like about it, Sally. You had a problem. You discovered it. You started working with it. You realized you were not the only one. Now you are talking about the book, which is just very, very needed for for almost everybody. Every family should have this book. And you're not selling a product because B12 is available wherever you go. I mean, most health food stores have B12, but you are here to explain the problem, not only the problem that we have, but also the actual symptoms that people can see and now what are some of the options that we have? And what do people need to know when they talk to their physician? What do they need to know when they do a blood test for B12? What do they need to pay attention to? What a doc- When a doctor says it's normal, most of the time it's not normal. Sally Patchelock, uh, could it be B12, an epidemic of misdiagnosis? We go- will go talk with her till 11 o'clock today. So stay put. We're going to be right back. Sally, it's good to have you with us. And let me ask you a question. Why is it an epidemic? Why why do you say on the book an epidemic of misdiagnosis? Well, there's there's several different reasons. First, there's a severe knowledge deficit in the medical community amongst physicians and all healthcare providers. So we <clears throat> that's number one. We need to be re-educated. We need to re-educate the physicians. Two we have a poor or absent screening in symptomatic and at-risk patients. 
and that has to do with the severe knowledge deficit. The third is that the current range for what we consider to be a normal serum B12 extends far too low. Um, we are not using other available tests to aid in the diagnosis because of that range. Mm-hmm. I think there's other sensitive tests that can help support or diagnose a B12 deficiency, but physicians aren't using those tests. I mean, are those tests available, but they just don't use it, or we don't yeah, have don't, the equipment? They don't use it. So and we first, have the first, equipment. Well, yeah, absolutely. The first problem is, and the reason I, the, one, the, the main reason I wrote the book, it's not just because I had the disorder. I'm very lucky that I was not injured because... An untreated yes. B12 deficiency over time can cause severe neuropathy or uh, paresthesias like diabetics get. Yes. Not only that, it causes balance and gait problems where it destroys the myelin. The myelin is the fatty protective coating that surrounds the brain and all of your nerves. Mm-hmm. So people can get signs and symptoms similar to people who have multiple sclerosis. You can actually injure and damage the nerves where people can end up in a wheelchair where they cannot walk any longer. Yes. They can be wheelchair-bound or bedridden. You yes. can actually die from a B12 deficiency. Yes. I'm very you know, thankful that I dodged the bullet and I am you know, neurologically intact and I don't have any problems. Well, the you were supposed to book, write this book. You were well, supposed to write it. We're working in the emergency department for 25 years, I see patients that come in that have signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency or actually have causes or, or risk factors and the physicians will not test them. They do not include B12 screening in their diagnostic workup, either in the emergency department or when that patient is admitted. So it's not just ER physicians, it's the internist, GI, neurologist, etc. Now, yes. in saying that, you have to realize, working in the ER, we see everybody's patients, okay? Yes. We're not limited to a sex like OB, obstetricians. We treat all ages from neonates to geriatrics. And the reason why we're seeing so much B12 deficiency is because other physicians are not testing their patients or diagnosing them, and oftentimes some of them are actually misdiagnosing them. Yes. So that's why I'm so keen onto it. And for, for about 20 years, I've been like patient advocates trying to educate the physician, saying, hey, you need to test this patient because they're having paresthesias, balance problems, falling, et cetera, or they have a gastrectomy from a gastric bypass to cancer or from ulcer disease. So that is why I wrote the book, because of my frustration of seeing what we're actually doing to patients. And in the beginning, in the late 80s, early 90s, they used to laugh at me. (laughs) And it was a real struggle. And I realized their knowledge deficit. And through the 90s, I, I started... In 1999, I actually created a cobalamin deficiency criteria list and a cobalamin deficiency risk score, which is in the book. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a tool that we're hoping physicians and other healthcare providers will use because it's kind of a cheat sheet that shows you what are the neurological manifestations, the psychiatric, the GI risk, the blood manifestations, other signs and symptoms, and the population at risk. And it helps them educate them and it kind of legitimized why they need to test them for B12 deficiency. Yes. The overwhelming knowledge deficit, physicians think B12 deficiency is just a blood disorder, that you get these enlarged red blood cells called macrocytosis, and you become severely anemic. Now, that can happen, but we know in the literature, if you really study it, that the neurological presentation of the disease well precedes 
the blood or the hematologic picture. So therefore, the name pernicious anemia is another name we give for B12 deficiency. And that's one of the reasons we're physicians are missing it because they're waiting for this deadly anemia or these big, large blood cells to be on the complete blood count, which is rarely seen nowadays. Now, you can become anemic, absolutely, but they want that macrocytosis to be along with it or otherwise they do not even think of B12. So therefore, they are not testing or screening patients. Now, you mentioned in your book Indeed, the confusion regarding subclinical versus clinical B12 deficiency. And so this is kind of what you are, what you're talking about. We're looking at the symptoms, the way you say the definition of subclinical disease is an illness that stays below the surface of clinical detection. A subclinical disease has no recognizable clinical findings. It is distinct from a clinical disease, which has signs and symptoms that can be recognized. Uh, is that kind of what you're referring to as well, that they look at what is on the surface because they test the blood, they see the large red blood cells, they say, oh, pernicious anemia, but they don't look at a history of the patient and connect the dots that some of the surgeries that people have had and some of the other symptoms that they experience on a daily life, especially as people get older, that they're not being recognized as being directly related to B12 deficiency, which are what you call the subclinical uh, uh, B12 deficiency? Well, the reason I wrote that part in there is because the CDC had made a nice report of B12 deficiency, and I felt they made it very confusing yes. for physicians and healthcare providers because they're saying that um, if you have clinical B12 deficiency, well, then, yeah, of course you test them, but if it's subclinical, well, you could miss it and you don't have to, um, you know, that's how you could miss it. It's giving them an excuse. Yes. But the reality is, is that we are failing as medical providers to, under, to, to remember what the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency are. Because actually, when they gave case presentations, they're saying it's subclinical, but really it's not. They had clinical signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. For instance, if you have numbness or tingling to your hands or feet or legs or burning or numbness, that is a, that is a clinical um, sign of yeah. B12 deficiency. That's a sign or it's a symptom. It's symptom. And so therefore you should be tested. Correct. So they may say, well, that's subclinical. It's not subclinical. Subclinical means you have no signs or symptoms. That would be someone who has absolutely no signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency and they're feeling great and healthy and you look at them, you go, wow. And say you just tested them just to test them. I don't know why you test them, but say you just did a screening and they became low, then you could say, you have that subclinical. But if you are symptomatic, and I think it's the failure of us knowing what the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency are, which is completely ridiculous because this is a well-known medical disorder for over 100 years. Wow. In fact, three Americans won the Nobel Prize of Medicine in 1934 for its life-saving discovery. Mm. This is well-written in all medical textbooks, neurology textbooks. There are thousands of articles published about cobalamin deficiency, yeah. so there's no excuse. So yeah. for them to write that, I, I thought was odd, and it, it also kind of, it, it confused, it, it just shows of what a, a problem we have in, in, in the world, especially in the U.S., of diagnosing B12 deficiency. Yeah. Folks, you're listening to Gesundheit with Jacobus, and my guest today is Sally Patchelock. She has written a very, very important book, 
that is an easy read, but it also has a lot of great clinical information in it. I'm sure you will will really enjoy this book. It's called Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnoses. This is a big problem. I we we I cannot state it enough. Uh, going through this book, um, you will learn that you yourself may very well have a B12 deficiency and that it gets worse as you get older. And Now, this is one other thing I want to point out. Yes. The other reason it's an epidemic is because the yes. signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency mimic other disease processes or disorders. And lastly, the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency are commonly mistaken for normal signs of aging. So older adults are higher risk of misdiagnosis. Mm. So, for instance, when we say mimic other diseases or disorders, if you have neuropathy and you have diabetes, your, your doctor may diagnose you with diabetic neuropathy. How do you know that that neuropathy is not partially due to B12 deficiency or entirely due to B12 deficiency versus diabetes? The yes. only way they're going to know is by testing you. Yeah. Okay? Absolutely right. And, for instance, um, people who have balance problems <clears throat> or tremor, that can be a sign of B12 deficiency. So yes. we should kind of tell the viewers the neurological signs and symptoms, again, are the paresthesias. You can have weakness of your legs, arms, or trunk, unsteady or abnormal gait, which causes difficulty walking, yes. the balance problems, dizziness, difficulty ambulating. You can get tremor. You can get restless legs, mm. visual disturbances, especially peripheral vision loss. Yes. You get forgetfulness, confusion, dementia. Yeah. And in late stages, you can actually have urinary or fecal incontinence. I know, I see that. Yeah, that is amazing. And 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 symptoms mimicking Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. Well, that... yeah, because multiple sclerosis is a demyelinating disease, and so is vitamin B12 deficiency. So they both destroy the myelin. So, of course, they're going to have the exact same signs and symptoms. Yes. Now... So anybody out there, if they think they have been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, that neurologist or your primary care physician, but typically they'll send you to a neurologist, they have to completely rule out B12 deficiency. Now you also, because it could be. Yeah, you, because you also have mentioned in another interview that you say, but sometimes the damage can already be so far along that you may not be able to repair it. Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. And this is why we're talking about this, and this is why this is a, a critical um, issue to discuss. Again, you need B12 not only for health, but you need it for life. And it's, it's, you have to have it for the myelin, which is that fatty protective covering that surrounds all the nerves. There's a certain amount of time that if you are so deficient for so long and it goes unrecognized and untreated, you can cause permanent nerve damage or neuron damage where that you're not going to be able to reverse the effects. For instance... There are malpractice cases of patients who they thought had different disorders. They never checked them for B12. They progressed, progressed, and then finally, at a late stage, they finally realized it was a vitamin B12 deficiency, but it went on so long that they are injured, neurologically injured. So you cannot repair and reverse the, um, the problem. But mm -hmm. the good news is mm -hmm. that's why we need screening. That's why we need to educate 
the public and healthcare providers what the signs and symptoms, the causes, the risk factors. So we screen and test people early and treat them early or even preventatively put certain risk groups on high-dose B12 so you can prevent neurologic injury or damage and cognitive decline. Now, B12 deficiency absolutely does cause mental disturbances and even dementia. A common symptom of B12 deficiency is depression. I can't tell you how many people come to the emergency department that we diagnose them with a severe B12 deficiency that are on antidepressants. And that, it includes, that includes postpartum depression. Which tells us depression. that their physician fails yes. to rule out B12 deficiency before they prescribe an antidepressant. Right. Which is wrong. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and even in children, right? I mean, uh, children in their behavior may very well be deficient in vitamin B12. And again, well, to come back to it, this is not a vitamin that we make. We need exactly. to get it from outside sources. And right. the best source of B12 in food is animal protein of different kinds. But And people need to realize, again, the number one reason that people have a deficiency is because they have some kind of malabsorption problem. Yes. It's a, it's a very, it's the, the one vitamin that takes several different steps for absorption. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to absorb. So even if you're eating a lot of meat, say if you ate liver every day, if you have a malabsorption problem, you could eat, you know, two pounds of liver a day. You're not going to, it's not going to be enough. So a lot of times people think, well, I'm not a vegan or vegetarian, or they think, oh, those are the people that just get it. No. no. So there are. it can be dietary. Mm-hmm. It can be a malabsorption. It can be something with your pancreas or your ileum or your stomach. Mm-hmm. Or it could be drug-induced, which would be the proton pump inhibitors. Another common drug is called metformin or glucophage that diabetics take. Yes. They have found it does something to the ileal receptors that causes a B12 deficiency over time. So not only do you have the GI diseases and the diet, but then you have the drugs. And a third drug, a common drug, is nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is laughing gas that dentists use a lot, and we do use in surgery, for, especially for brain and spinal how do you, surgery. How do you spell that, Sally? Nitrous, nitrous oxide is N-I-T-R-O-U-S, and then oxide, O-X-I-D-E. Nitrous. And there are teenagers and tweens and young adults that also abuse nitrous oxide to get high. They call them whippets. Mm. So nitrous oxide inactivates B12 in the body. Now, it's not a problem if you have healthy, no malabsorption problems and healthy stores of B12. But if you have a deficiency going on, beginning deficiency or a deficiency, and you give somebody nitrous oxide, they can really plummet out your B12 and people start having um, acute signs and symptoms real rapid. Yes. And they, we think that they're having like a stroke or they go into a, like a psychosis, et cetera. Mm. So the problem is we give nitrous oxide a lot in dental and in you know, medical procedures, and yet we're not screening patients for B12 deficiency. We don't even know what the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency are. So you can see that's another additional problem. And we do use nitrous oxide a lot in children when they get their tonsils out, adenoids, Mm. ear tubes, different procedures. Oh, boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's a problem because, again, we don't even know the signs and symptoms in adults, but in infants and children, we have to remember we're all human. It attacks the brain and the nervous system. Mm. Developmental delay is is 
described in the medical literature as a common, that's what it does when you have a B12 deficiency in pediatrics, it causes developmental delay. So today in this world, we have a lot of children diagnosed on the autism spectrum, like they have developmental delay and they're looking for autism, et cetera. Therefore, it would only make logical sense any child with suspicion of having autism or diagnosed on the autism spectrum or having developmental delay or regression absolutely has to have vitamin B12 deficiency ruled out. Hmm. And we advocate, instead of people running out and start taking a bunch of B12, if you are symptomatic or at risk, you need to get tested. And then they need, you know, to see, was I B12 deficient? You want to know that for a variety of reasons. Maybe you can get off of some of these other drugs that you've been placed on antidepressants, antipsychotics, etc. Maybe that's the reason you have restless legs or why you have a neuropathy. Right. And plus, you need to know if you have an injury, you need evidence if, if you have a malpractice case out there, okay? Right. Or, I see. You know, because you people have know, one case. have a deficiency so that doctor can figure out why does that person have a deficiency? Maybe you have celiac disease or irritable yes. bowel syndrome. So it's going to help them. And so we always say you need to have baseline screening. Now, for instance, there are people who are deficient, and then say people who aren't deficient, you still could try a high-dose B12 as a therapeutic trial, just like we give other drugs to uh-huh. see if it helps. And there are, and you can give high-dose B12 to help neurotransmitters, to help mood, um, depression, etc. We need to talk when we come back, uh, Sally. We have, we're going to go up to a break here. But children, if they already have autistic tendencies then many times we say it was the vaccinations. Now, that's been in the news a lot. So is it possible that vaccines have chemicals in it that attack the brain that therefore call a malabsorption of B12? Or is it could it indeed be a B12 deficiency that the mother had and that she was not giving to the child through her breast milk? Uh, These are all possibilities. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So those are things we got to keep in mind, folks. So there's a lot to... Oh boy, there's a lot we can learn about this. We'll be right back. Caller, good morning. Thank you for joining the program today. What is your name? How can we help you, please? Uh, it's Kobus. This is Ed. Hey, Ed. Thanks. Hey. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh, Sally, uh, I have you uh, come across anything on B12 and type 2 diabetes? Has that popped up in your awareness at all? With with diabetes? Type 2. Type 2 adult onset. Well, well, anybody with diabetes should be screened for B12 deficiency for a variety of reasons. First, not the kind that you have, but insulin-dependent diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And one, yep. reason, uh, one reason a person can have a B12 deficiency is because of autoimmune pernicious anemia, which that's what I have. Once you have one autoimmune disease, you're higher risk of having other autoimmune diseases. The uh, second thing for non-insulin-dependent diabetics, the drug glucophage metformin can cause a B12 deficiency over time. That's uh-huh. been written in the literature for many years, and just recently, I think because of our book and promoting B12, a lot of articles, a lot of studies are coming out showing that, even though we've known about this for 20 years. So that's uh-huh. a reason. The other thing is, is a lot of times people get neuropathy from either kind of diabetes, and a lot of times they're placed on neurotin, um, for the paresthesias, and a doctor will get tunnel vision, and they will just assume that it has to do, the, the paresthesias are due to the diabetes. You have to remember the pancreas is involved, and if you have pancreatic insufficiency, 
you can have a B12 deficiency because it, you need the pancreas to help absorb B12. So, yes, uh-huh. in a roundabout way, all diabetics should always be screened for B12 deficiency. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that's, that's the, uh, all of my uh, question at the moment. Well, great. Thanks, thanks a lot, Ed. Appreciate the call. Yeah, okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sally Patchelock with her book, Could It Be B12? may be able, with her 25-plus years of research, to tell us if this could be related to a vitamin B12 deficiency and then also explain, again, what are some of the ways that we can get B12 in our system because it's not a vitamin we make ourselves. We have to get it from outside sources. Call a good morning to you. Thanks for joining the program today. What is your name and how can we help you? It's Bob. Thank you. Hey, Bob. Uh, yeah, just a couple uh, quick questions. I suspect you're going to get to these questions, uh, but I wanted to make sure to ask them anyway. We can jump around, Bob. Okay. Um, first is, uh, specifically, what type of testing do you do or have a, uh, a lab do that gives adequate uh, uh, results for B12 deficiency? That's the first question. Um, the second question is, uh, then, how do you, uh, what's the form of B12 that you take um, that uh, increases the uh, the proper level of B12 in the body. Uh, is it through a pill, injection, or what, what uh, method is that? And the third question I have is, can B12 or some uh, supplement related to B12 uh, accelerate or improve uh, regeneration of the myelian sheath um, on the nerve uh, in some form? Uh, I'd be interested in answering all three of those questions, and I'll hang up and listen to your answers. Bob, you could stay if you want. Uh, if you okay, want to hang up, sure. that's fine. I don't mind. I'll stay on. Sure. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Go ahead, Sally. Okay, the, the test for B12 would be a serum B12. Another test is called methylmalonic acid, and they have that in the serum or the urine. And the third test is homocysteine. And the fourth test that's rarely used, they just started it maybe like three, four years ago in America, but it's been available in the United Kingdom and in Europe for a while. It's holotranscobalamin 2. But the three tests, a B12 and, a, and urinary methylmalonic acid, really those two, you should be able to identify it. Is that outlined in your book? Yes. Yeah. Okay, fine. I don't need to try to remember and write it down. Okay, good. <laughs> I was, and, I'm writing it down, but I, I don't have to because it really is in the book. Okay, good. Yes. Fine. And we're going to go into why this methylmalonic acid and homocysteine, they are indirect tests that become elevated when you have a B12 deficiency because there are actual metabolic pathways in our body that you need B12 as the coenzyme for it to go from one substance to another. And if there's not B12, it gets backed up, and these two substances, methylmonic acid, rise in the blood and the urine, and so does homocysteine. And while we're on that right now, the third reason B12 is so important for our body is that when you do have a true deficiency, you will have elevated homocysteine. And homocysteine is a substance in our blood. It's a protein. And when it, what it does, when it's elevated, it causes vascular disease and it causes blood clots. So it causes heart attacks, strokes, pulmonary embolisms, deep vein thrombosis. I, I so, actually think, Sally, that I, I heard once that uh, homocysteine is a much more prevalent cause of heart attacks than cholesterol problems. And that, well, they, 
In fact, Abbott Laboratories was quoted as saying that high homocysteine can increase the risk of heart attacks as much as high cholesterol. You know, we test everybody's cholesterol like twice a year, even like more, et cetera. And, if, you know, they're, they're both factors, vascular factors. The problem is many physicians, cardiologists, we don't screen homocysteine routinely. Right. Right. And we should be. And yep. one of the reasons why people have a high homocysteine is because they have a functional vitamin B12 deficiency. So we are placing, not only are we risking their brain and their nerves at you know, risk and causing anemia where you can actually have a blood transfusion or chronic anemia where you're weak and dizzy and you don't feel good. And, you know, when you're anemic, it's bad for the entire body because the blood carries oxygen to all of our organs and our cells. Yes. But the third kicker is we are causing vascular clots. Mm. And, in fact, there was an article in 2009 in a thrombosis journal, and this is really to put home to your listeners out there that, well, we think, you know, when people have like a heart attack or a stroke, well, they're old, they're supposed to be, you know, having clots or whatever. We don't think of homocysteine. We don't think of B12. Right. But there was an article of a 27-year-old male that went to the hospital, and this, is, this article showed the misdiagnosis of this man. He had signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency, because I was reading it. He was admitted because they didn't know what was wrong with him neurologically. They thought maybe he had multiple sclerosis. So they actually admitted this guy. They failed to diagnose him outpatient, which supports, again, physicians don't know the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. Right. So he was admitted. Day two of his admission, and they, you know, when you get admitted, they already do blood work, et cetera. You know, they're doing EMGs, trying to figure out what's wrong with him. He starts having chest pain. Well, they do EKG on him. He's, he's having a heart attack. They take him to the cath lab. His, um, one of his main arteries is blocked, like 99%. They put a stent in, okay? So he has a big clot there. Wow. Day three, four, he's still having chest pain, not doing so good. So they send him back in. They cath scan his chest. He has numerous pulmonary embolism, blood clots in his lungs which then made them go, wow, why is this guy at 27 having all these blood clots? Which made them, pulmonary embolisms go with high homocysteine, which made them go, hey, let's check his homocysteine. Then they start looking, why is he here? His neurologic presentation, hey, B12. Tested his B12, severely low. Homocysteine was huge. It should be below 12. Some places want you to be below 10. His was 105. Wow. And what they did, there are genetic disorders where you can have high homocysteine. And they did all these genetic tests on him and proved that he did not have the genetic part. It was simply due to a severe B12 deficiency that induced this high homocysteine, which led to him having a heart attack and numerous pulmonary embolisms. Wow. Now, that is to get, and this was, this was published in 2009. That is to show you a common example of how we are misdiagnosing B12 deficiency in the United States. Yeah. Now, can you imagine, this is a 27-year-old man. If an if a elderly person, a 60-year-old or a 75-year-old, if that happened, we would even think B12. And we should think of it in older adults because older adults are even higher risk of getting a B12 deficiency. Exactly. And uh, folks, you're listening to Sally Patchelock on my program, Gesundheit with Jacobus, uh, talking about her book, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis? 5228255. Bob is still with us on the phone. Uh, the second question that you had, Bob, is which form of B12? Yes, the, two, the forms of B12, I like injections or underneath your tongue, which is called sublingual. Mm -hmm. Because when a lot of companies put a lot of binders and fillers, and again, it's very difficult vitamin to absorb, and you have to have at least over 1,000 micrograms. So two forms, 
or two ways to give B12 underneath your tongue, just like nitroglycerin, we give sublingual nitro and absorbs. You have these vessels that get into the bloodstream. Yes. And they do make, numerous companies make different... Um, Sublinguals. Uh, yeah, that they, they dissolve underneath your tongue. Correct. And two, two forms that, two products that I use, I use are good, are from, there's one from Superior Source that dissolves like a nitro tablet, and yep. then also Now Foods has good sublingual B12. Mm-hmm. And again, you should be taking at least 2,000 underneath your tongue. Now, with saying that, people shouldn't run out and start taking it. Always get yourself tested first, because you need to know, was B12 a problem? You can't take B12 for you know, a few days or a week and go, oh, I feel better, and then get off of it for a month and get tested. It stays in your system. It'll screw up your blood test for six months or eight months, and then you don't want to be off of it for that long period of time because if it is B12, you're doing your body a disservice by being off of it. That's why you need to get... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, what did you say? Turn that up. Turn Bob up, please. Bob, no, did you say a, something? Uh, yes, is there any downside to taking too much uh, B12? No, it's a, it's a water-soluble vitamin. Um, the, the problem is why there's a downside is if you start thinking that everything is related to B12 and you have some other medical condition and you put your, all, your eggs all in one basket, that's why you need to be tested. Yeah. And the thing is, you want to know, was I deficient? How, how severely deficient was I? Is this making sense of some of my signs and symptoms? Do I need to be on it long term, forever? Why? Because some people could feel... You know, maybe you have a little damage and you don't really feel that much better or you kind of do or, you know, you're not sure, and then you stop taking it. What if you really needed it? Because it's a very slow and insidious process that does damage the nerves, and it can cause vascular clots. Um, you need it for neurotransmitters in your brain for mental health. So, and people can take who aren't deficient, you can take high dose for prevention or to feel good, et cetera, and it's yeah. water-soluble so you don't have to be... Um, uh, you know, worried that it becomes toxic. The other thing, too, is all the B vitamins work together. So we always tell people they should be taking a B50 complex, not that you'll be able to get the B12 from the B50 complex, but the folic acid, the thiamine, um, niacin, all those work synergistically together. B12, folic acid, and B6 kind of work together, and that helps lower homocysteine. So really, you should Correct. be taking a a, a good B50 complex or B100, and then B12 needs to be sublingual if you're deficient or injection. And then as far as the sublingual is concerned, then you recommend you do the methylcobalamin in this case yeah, now, because many people buy whatever they see, but if you look, turn the label around, folks, look yeah. at what it says behind B12 in parentheses. It will tell you what type it is. It can be Dibencozite, which is one of them, by the way, that I've seen from the company Country Life. I don't know what you know about that one. Then there is methylcobalamin, which is the best, which is very well absorbed. Uh, then there is cyanocobalamin, and cyanocobalamin is actually the raw form of B12, I tell people. It doesn't really do much until it gets correctly broken down in the liver, which means it first needs to go through the digestive process, which we already discussed for most people has been compromised. So by the time it gets to the liver, it has a hard time. There's just, just not very much left. So it is very difficult then to convert that with the correct enzymes in the liver into methylcobalamin. You might as well do methylcobalamin under the tongue, straight, goes right into the bloodstream, and you got much better success. And uh, and and then you're, you're, there is a, you actually mentioned to me before the program, Sally, uh, hydroxycobalamin? 
Yeah, hydroxocobalamin is a is attached to a hydroxyl group. They have that in injection. Um, they've been using that. It's a it's been studied where it stays in the cells and the tissues longer, three times longer than cyanocobalamin. In America, we use cyanocobalamin as in all the hospitals, etc. The yes. point is, hydroxocobalamin is available. And I, when I first started taking injections in the 80s, I didn't even know there was a different form until I started researching it. This is a form we use for children with inborn errors of B12 metabolism in infants and children, injectable. And the research shows from studies that it, it's, it's more available. The body doesn't have to convert it into the active forms. Simply put, there's methyl B12, cyanocobalamin B12, hydroxocobalamin, and this adenosyl B12. Our bodies have to convert B12, whatever kind you take, into the active form. The two active forms are methyl and adenosyl. So cyanocobalamin is attached to a cyanide group. And in the early 30s, 40s, when they were doing experiments, they had, it was a bound to the cyanide group, and, they, and it, it's stable, so they used it. It's cheap. And they've always kept it that way. And, yes, you can treat a B12 deficiency that way. But the point is some people have problems converting it to the active forms. Oh. So people who have liver disorders, kidney problems, people who smoke because they have enough, like, cyanide, you should be using the other forms. Yeah. And the larger situation is if we have a better available form that's just is no more cost, uh, it's no more expensive than cyanocobalamin, why are we giving cyanocobalamin? Yes. We should really be using, the standard of care should be using hydroxocobalamin. Yes. I think because it's, it's easier for our bodies to convert. Yeah. So therefore, maybe 10% or 15% of the population that have these difficulties, you know, they wouldn't be affected. Now, that's for the injection. Yes, you can get methylcobalamin injections. I feel the hydroxocobalamin works just as well as the methylcobalamin. The methylcobalamin is more expensive. A lot of compounding pharmacies are inflating the price, et cetera. But when you take a pill form, um, I would always choose a methylcobalamin over cyanocobalamin yeah. under the tongue or right. taking a pill. Now, what is, what is D-Ben... Oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. What is what? You, you know, what is what is D-Benkozite? I've seen that that's on... That's adenosyl. That's the other active oh, form. Oh, that's People adenosyl. People always just think there's one active form, methyl, but actually there's two. Adenosyl is the other name for that, and methyl are the two active forms that our body needs. Okay. One's for the myelin, the methyl B12, and the other one is for the, for the cellular level. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's a good form. Well, yeah. i got to tell you, I'm impressed with your knowledge on this, Sally. <laughs> you really do know this stuff. Well, Bob, oh, yeah. I tell you, that, that is a, that's a great compliment, and I tell you, the book that she has written, Could It Be B12? I highly recommend you pick up your copy. You start reading it, it's very I'm, hard to put it down <laughs> because you recognize yourself in it. Yeah, in fact, I will. I'll be down to get it. Hey, the final question I had was, um, to, to what degree can uh, the, the addition of uh, vitamin B12 then uh, repair or heal uh, damaged myelin sheath? Well, it, it's kind of like a mathematical equation. It depends how long you had the deficiency and how severe the deficiency was on. And plus, like your other, uh, you know, how old you are, et cetera. For instance, there was a, um, there have been patients that have been injured so, for so long that they remain crippled and they are in wheelchairs. And in fact, and there's this other man that he almost passed away from a B12 deficiency. He was bedridden. Um, in fact, they thought he had multiple sclerosis, and they thought he had some other rare neurological disorder. In fact, this man was a physician. He was about 52 at the time. 
And long story short, he had a peg tube in. He had a pick line to feed him intravenously. He lost like 60 pounds, and they were just, he was like putting him into hospice care. Figured out it was a B12 deficiency. And this man now, this is five years post his injury, he can walk with um, forearm crutches. So he's not wheelchair bound, but he never will have the balance like you or I. He won't be able to run. Yeah. He can't walk with unassisted devices because his balance, it destroys the um, columns in the, in the neural tracts. We have so to run. balance issues. So in a sense, but at least he's able to walk. Yeah. So we have people, to run, Sally. We've got to go sorry? take a short break. Stay tuned, please. Caller, good morning. Thanks for joining the program. Your name, please. How can we help you? Yeah, Jacobus, this is Steve. Hey, Steve. Uh, well, you may have just answered my question, but as you know, uh, my daughter has ALS. Yes. Symptoms. Yes. And that has to do with, of course, the nerves not working properly to get the communications, you know, where they need to go. Yeah. And... Um, so would that be something that would maybe possibly have to do with ALS? Yeah, anybody diagnosed with, say, ALS, Guillain-Barre, multiple sclerosis, like neurological disorders, absolutely has to have proper diagnostic workup for a cobalamin or vitamin B12 deficiency because they can share the same signs and symptoms and they can be easily mistaken for another disorder. To give you an example, I heard from a man from California who had um, the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. He had neuropathy, he had weakness, and it progressed. They thought he had multiple sclerosis. Um, They sent him to a neurologist and he said, I think it's a virus and he says it's going to go, you know, see me like in in six weeks, it probably will go away. It just has to run its course. Well, he progressively got worse and worse, went back, and they said, well, I think maybe got multiple sclerosis. They did EMGs on all of his limbs, and he progressively, over another couple of months, worse and worse. So he went. they sent him to another neurologist, and this neurologist repeated all the um, EMGs and, and said, I think you do have ALS. This is what he told them. This was in 2010 that this happened. Mm-hmm. And he did a whole bunch of repeated um, blood tests, and he said, everything is back on you. I'm going to send you to a specialist in San Francisco. All he deals with is ALS patients, because that's what I think that you have. Yeah. He says there's a couple of tests that aren't back yet, one of them which was vitamin B12. He says, I don't think that's your problem, but we're going to set you up for this appointment. Well, the next day, lo and behold, his test results came back, called the patient at home and said, get in here immediately. I know what your problem is. This man had a severe B12 deficiency. That is to give you an example how it can mimic, because you have to remember, you need B12 for your nerves and the myelin. So how do you know if, I mean, and I'm assuming, and we are, this is what you have to find out from your daughter's doctors, they probably did rule it out, but you have to make sure. You have to go in there and say, hey, what was her serum B12 what was the methylmalonic acid? What was the homocysteine? And even saying that, even when they, they need to tell you those, if they have not done those tests, they need to do them. And a serum B12 is not good enough for a variety of reasons. So you need all those three tests together. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. even saying that, even if they've ruled it out, maybe even high doses could help with her disease process if she really does have the ALS. 
But you have to, don't start giving her B12 because you're going to screw up the results. Because if, if it is B12, then she needs to be aggressively treated. I which see. would be with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, daily injections and, and there, there's a therapy. And, it, and the beauty of B12, it's so cheap to treat. Yes. Treating with injectable B12 will cost less than 40, uh, cost around $40 a year if you self-inject. Wow. And that's what the good stuff. I use hydroxylcobalamin. So you could give a series of injections and maintenance bi-monthly, $40. Mm-hmm. Steve? Well, yeah. thank you very much. Yes, You're welcome. Steve. So you make sure you ask. If they say, oh, it's fine, because this is the deal. A lot of physicians, if you are not macrocytic, if you don't see those big red blood cells, they're not going to think B12. And a lot of times they mistakenly look at the complete blood count and they go, well, it can't be B12, but that's untrue, and they should know this, because you can have a coexisting iron deficiency and a B12 deficiency, and this mean corpuscular volume will be normal. It's just a mathematical calculation of all your cell sizes. And if you take enough folic acid, which we, you know, in the United States, we fortified all our cereal and grain in 1998, the FDA did that, and if you take folic acid on your own, it's easy to absorb, and you get it from grains and cereals, fruits and vegetables, and vegetarians and vegans are on a lot of that. You can improve the anemia and shrink down the cell size if you take in enough folic acid when you have a B12 deficiency. And that's why they even put in the physician desk reference, they tell physicians, never, ever, ever give a patient prescribe high-dose folic acid therapy when they have an underlying B12 deficiency because you can shrink the cells down and improve the anemia and fool you, and the underlying B12 deficiency can continue and you can cause neurologic injury. Right. But we shouldn't even be going by the cell size of the blood on a complete blood count, but the problem is that has not turned over to the entire medical community, and that's why we have the problem. Right. Yeah. Well, Steve, did Thanks. she did she have? Uh, I do know Steve in your daughter's case that right. things went downhill very quickly. Yes. Is, is that often a sign, Sally, that uh, if it goes down that quickly at a, such a young age? Well, you have then you have to look at the risk factors. Was your daughter given any nitrous oxide? Did she have her? A lot of times when you have your wisdom teeth removed, we use they use that a lot. Did she get a nitrous oxide for dental cleaning? So you got to look at the risk factors. Does your daughter have any kind of a GI disease? meaning um, anything with her stomach, pancreas, um, small intestine? Yeah, not that I'm aware of, but uh, she did go, well, she did go get her with, uh, she had some, um, oh, what did it call Um, Root canal? Root canals taken out. Find out if they use nitrous oxide, because that can give you a swift presentation of a B12 deficiency, because if she was low to begin with, or say she was deficient, and then you give them that, it just plummets it out, and, and then you, that's why they don't think B12, because it gives them an acute presentation. Usually it's very slow and progressive, but once you get to the point of, you know, then it, you just like go downhill, very slow and progressive. Yeah. But nitrous oxide, an insult like that, can make a swift presentation. So go, you know, call the dentist and say, hey, when she had that extraction, was nitrous oxide used, which is laughing gas? Mm-hmm. Or any other surgeries that she's had, so that would be make sure your daughter doesn't, you know, have underlying um, uh, bulimia, anorexia, anything like that. Um, you can yeah. also find out if um, is she a vegan vegetarian. I mean, there there, no. there are a lot of different reasons. Yeah, yeah no, she's not any of that. Okay. Uh, anyway, well, very good information. That's a place to 
look at anyway. Yeah, but I would, I would absolutely, you have to insist on them doing a methylmonic acid homocysteine. And again, don't start giving her B12 because you need to do those, like, you know, baseline. Right. Where are we at? Because you want to know, is this part of the puzzle? Mm. Right. Mm. Okay, well, great program, Jacobus. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Oh, you okay. betcha. Good luck to you. Yeah. Thank you. One of the things that I want to explain of that, I, that maybe you can explain to us, Sally, as far as interpreting the B12 values, it says physicians need to be aware that in some research studies, B12 values are measured in picomoles per liter, PMOL uh, per liter, while clinical laboratories express values in picograms per milliliter or nanograms per liter. And then you actually explain the conversions. So this is very important information. And then you mentioned that clinicians need to treat symptomatic patients that are lower than 450 picogram per milliliter. If you have a test, if you had a B12 test done and you are less than 450 picogram per milliliter, then you need B12, extra B12. That is correct? Yeah, um... In the literature for decades, they have shown that people, many studies were showing between 200 and 350, when they used methylmonic acid and homocysteine, they had elevations and the patients were symptomatic, so they knew they had a B12 deficiency. It proved they had a B12 deficiency. Other studies have shown up to 400. So they, in the literature, they say if your B12 is under 400, you definitely need to have the other tests to back it up or to help diagnose it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, with saying that, there's some other problems. Methylmalonic acid and homocysteine, they're not gold standard tests. There are some problems with the test. Um, again, sometimes we need to look at a patient clinically, and if the patient presents clinically with B12 deficiency, of course we've ruled out other medical disorders. Um, definitely need to do those tests but you kind of use them as groups together. We have seen patients that will fall a B12 under 200 and the methylmonic acid and homocysteine are normal. I see. We don't I want you to, those tests to be done and then say, well, and they clinically present like they have a B12 deficiency. Don't use those tests and then not treat the patient because many patients have been treated and have their symptoms reversed when those methylmonic acid and homocysteine showed normal. And I know it's a little confusing, but we have to be honest. Within the last 10 years, I mean, they are good tests. You should use them as a group, especially in um, younger people with neurologic presentation. There's different B12 kits or assays that are out there. And, in fact, in the New England Journal of Medicine, there's an article just published in May of 2012 where they had two patients that clinically presented like they had B12 deficiencies severe and their serum B12 was in, like in the thousands. And they thought, well, gee, how can, this, how can this be? Well, sure enough, they did the methylmonic acid homocysteine and they were very elevated, which proved that they had a B12 deficiency. They are thinking that some people that have intrinsic factor antibodies with certain assay kits will give a false elevation of the serum B12 test. So there's many reasons why you need to group these together, and that's sometimes why a serum B12 is not the end-all test that you have to pursue other tests. Mm. But if you're below, four, we say 450 versus 400, because yeah. there's been research where they have done 
tested the B12 and the cerebral spinal fluid, and they have found that people, that serum, that 550 or less, actually did not have enough B12 transferred in the cerebral spinal fluid. So okay. their cutoff was kind of 550. So we kind of, we know 400, they're saying in the literature. There's really not you know, to be that, safe, yeah. we're, we're saying, you know, if you're below 450, 500, you, you, you need to be on B12. Yes. And it's kind of funny because once you start getting treated, a lot of times, you know, your B12 will be above 1,000. It could be 2,000. Physicians go, oh, you got too much B12. No, that, that, that's a normal uh, response when you're on B12 to be over 1,000. That's good for brain health and for nerve health to be over 1,000. Okay. So the tests, this is why a physician has to get involved. There can be false positives and false negatives. Correct. And, again, what we really need to do, and we even say this, even if all your tests came back normal, we still want you to be baseline tested. Yes. If you that patient clinically, God, you go, wow, they really got signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. Yes. You need to give them a therapeutic trial. You need to treat them to see if it improves them. <clears throat> Yeah. That's just how we use other drugs. If someone was depressed, they come in, they put you on an antidepressant, then you come back in a week, you know, two weeks, a month, they either ask you how you're feeling, and then you either they up your dose, stop your dose, double the dose, you know, it's to see if you got a, you know, a benefit from the medication. Yeah, totally. And this is what this, this practitioner saw there. Yeah. That's why we need to understand the clinical aspects of B12 deficiency. Yeah, we're going to take a really short break, Sally. It, you have to kind of treat it, but you really we should use tests. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Stay put, please. Thanks for listening today. Thank you so much, much everybody, for tuning in today. I hope you are enjoying this program as much as I do, and I know Chuck is just you know he is ready to to get some B12. Well, you remember I was mentioning earlier that I've had my own experience with yeah, B12. Tell us about it. Well, when I was 16, well, when I was a kid uh, during the summer, so that's all I do is spend my time in the lake. Yeah. And this was an extremely hot summer. And um, it was like an algae bloom or something in the lake. But I got a severe ear infection. And I woke up one morning. And half my face is paralyzed. This is like the next morning? Or yeah, yeah. It was quick. And half my face was paralyzed, which is, um, well, it was terrifying. And I went to the doctor, and it was diagnosed as Bell's palsy. And the only treatment they had at the time was doses of B12. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And luckily, it worked. And after about a year, I got most of my facial muscles back. It and, took almost a year? Yeah, and then it's taken, well, it took several years before it was almost 100%. Huh. And even now, if I get tired, yeah, it'll be a little droopy. Really? That, that, uh, really that still, you feel that then, and you just don't have the, uh, the strength in your muscles in your face right. on the right side. Wow. Huh. Is that possible, Sally? Yeah, they, they still do use, they can use B12 for Bell's palsy. So anybody who gets like a Bell's palsy attack, they should be checked for a deficiency. And they, that's a nice um, adjunctive treatment for it. It has to run its course, the virus. Yeah. And, um, sure, it's scary. Yeah, because people, sometimes they come in the ER all the time with that. They think they're having strokes, but they got Bell's palsy. Right. Which is good. I mean, you, you need to, because if you don't know, you need to come in because if it's a stroke, that, you know, <laughs> yeah, we have to have you in to... 
<laughs> Certainly. The casting of your brain, et cetera. But you can tell by their age, symptoms, et cetera. Yeah. You realize, indeed, that this is a very big issue, and we have so much to talk about in this next hour with Sally, next 45 minutes or so, that I should say. I quickly want to read something that it says on her website, b12awareness.org. B12 deficiency causes symptoms such as nerve pain or tingling. So this is just for all of you listening because you may recognize yourself in this. B12 deficiency causes symptoms such as nerve pain or tingling, dementia, mental illness, tremor, and difficulty walking. It is commonly misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, depression, diabetic neuropathy, vertigo, and mini-strokes. Major medical journals report that vitamin B12 deficiency occurs in up to 15% of the elderly, approximately 5.9 million seniors age 65 and older. Other studies report the prevalence to be 15 to 25%. What's more, these numbers only relate to persons 65 and older. They do not include the vast numbers of Americans under the age of 65, some of them infants and children, and millions of them young and middle-aged adults who become B12 deficient for a variety of reasons. Treating B12 deficiency costs only a few dollars a month about 10 cents a day, and symptoms are often completely reversible if people receive early treatment. If diagnosed late, symptoms such as dementia and nerve injury typically cannot be reversed. B12 deficiency can mimic multiple sclerosis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and postpartum depression or psychosis. It can make men or women infertile and cause developmental disabilities or autistic-like symptoms in children. Other groups of people at high risk for B12 deficiency include vegans, vegetarians, alcoholics, and people with celiac disease, Crohn's disease, gastric bypass, anemia, autoimmune diseases, and AIDS. The use of certain drugs, such as proton pump inhibitors, metformin, H2 blockers, and nitrous oxide can also cause B12 deficiency. That is almost the show in a nutshell, folks. This is great stuff. So, Sally Pachalak uh, with us on the show today. And we have a caller who would like to ask you a question. Sally, caller, good morning. Thanks for holding on. Your name, how can we help you, please? Good morning, Jacobus. This is Steve. Hey, Steve. Good morning, Sally. This is a great show. Uh, uh, thank I've you. i already got the book. You already but, got the uh, book? Oh, yeah. Well, good for I, you. I don't already have it. I ordered it from you. Great. Um, what I need to know is, uh, well, I already know I need... Uh, uh, let's see, twelve injections. Yeah. Uh, the information that you guys are giving today is fantastic. Um, but all I have right now is B12 and chewable tablets. Uh, what is it's MCGs? How many MCGs a day would one take? Okay, so you've already been tested for B12 deficiency, <coughs> and you know you're deficient. Well, let's put it this way: uh, my pancreas has been shut down for forty-six years, and my food doesn't digest. I have tremors, and everybody says it's neuropathy, neuralgia, and neuritis. And so your what B12 I would makes a lot of sense. Okay, what I would do though before you start taking them, which I would I would agree that you probably need B12, is you really should get like at least get a basic serum B12 because that way at least you can prove oh, I got and that. show. I got I'm that. sorry. I already had that. Okay, and were and, you deficient? Uh, but that's all they're giving me. But uh, how, how, how was your number, Steve? Farther. What was I'm your sorry? number? My number. What was your number on your B12 serum test? 
Oh, I don't have it in front of me, but they but they never mentioned it. All they do is check the serum, and then they say, you're fine. I'll look at it as soon as I get off the phone, but I'm pretty sure if it's under 400 or even if it's over, uh, they didn't do any other tests. So Okay, so okay, I mean, so just because you've got pancreas, you want to try to see if this, this helps. I understand what you're saying. You need to take over 1,000 micrograms, a one microgram... Milligram. 1,000 1, micrograms equals one milligram. Yeah. Okay? So okay. sometimes on bottles they'll say five milligrams or two milligrams. That's okay. But if, you know, in a multivitamin, it's only six micrograms. That's not enough. So you need a product that's at least over 1,000 micrograms. I recommend 2,000 to 5,000 micrograms. And you take methyl B12. So find one that can dissolve under your tongue. I wouldn't do a tool. I do one that's Yeah, methyl cobalamin. That's the one. Okay. Yeah, the methyl cobalamin. Cobalamin is another name for B12. So get like right. a, a 5,000 methyl B12 and let it melt under your tongue. Okay, these are chewable tablets. Will that still melt? Yeah, you can put them under, under your the tongue, tongue or you can chew them, whatever. They, yeah, they say you chewable. Know, there's different, there's different um, you know, companies. Some have, look at the other ingredients they're putting in there. The less ingredients, the better. Again, the two ones that I think are good are Superior Source and that now Foods has um, high-dose right, methyl. Superior Source and now, yeah. 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 Look at the ingredients. You might find some other manufacturers that don't have a lot of binders or fillers. You don't want to really swallow mm-hmm. one, you know, swallow them. Yeah, my question, the other question was, if I chew this, it has to go through the digestive tract, correct? Well, you're, you're going to get some buccal, which is the side of your cheek absorption. You kind of want, that's why you want to dissolve fast and it goes under your tongue because you have vessels there that kind of right. get into the bed, bloodstream. So it's kind okay. of like, it's the best next thing to an injection in a sense. Fantastic. Transdermal patches have not been well studied. Mm. I know there's different routes. They have nasal B12 that you can... Um, do sprays. The pharmaceutical companies sell those. They're very expensive compared to injections. Um, and they use cyanocobalamin. Uh, so there, again, I would stick with the sublingual under the tongue or the um, injections. And injections are cheap. If they can teach you how to, you can say, hey, give me a therapeutic trial, prescribe me a vial of B12, and they can teach you how to give an injection like a diabetic, and you can do it at home too. But they got to oh, make sure I, that I it's not... Si- I've been doing it for 46 years, so... Oh, then you'll know how to give an injection <laughs> yeah, thoroughly without an pancreas has been shot, yeah. Yes, um, so you need it. If you have a bad pancreas, yes, you need to have... You should be on B12 for prophylactically, even if you're not deficient yet, but look, you've got signs and symptoms of it, absolutely. Right. Uh, 5,000, uh, that's it, for a day. Yeah, underneath your tongue a, a day. Okay, I'm going to take the whole bottle of it for a minute. Okay, and there was now in Superior... Superior Source, source is one source. of them. Superior Force, great, fantastic. No source. You guys from fantastic. Keep up the great work, everybody. Okay, thank you. Well, thank I appreciate you. it. Bye-bye thank now. you, Steve. Bye-bye. Good luck to you. Uh, well, yes, uh, so some of the forms are Superior Source. That's uh, a company that makes very tiny tablets that almost look like homeopathy. And then there is the Now brand, which has them. We have also, we have the Now brand at the Gesundheit Nutrition Center. We have Natural Factors, which is another one that is actually right now on sale. I mean, everything is on sale, but uh, there is a, that has a 120, you get 60 and you get 60 free pretty much. So that's a great deal. And uh, those are 5,000 micrograms. And then the Now brand, and then we have Country Life. So there are different forms that we have available, ranging from 1,000 micrograms to 10,000 micrograms. So, and, and Sally, when you talk about the injectables, 
then still there are a lot of people who get cyanocobalamin as an injectable and they need to get the hydroxylcobalamin, correct? Well, a cyanocobalamin will treat a B12 deficiency, it will. But the point is, it makes no sense to use an inferior source when we know that hydroxylcobalamin stays in the tissues in the cells three times longer. It's available. It's the same price. Why are we using cyanocobalamin? It makes no sense. So, and the, the other problem of it is the treatment protocol for B12 deficiency is archaic. It's going back way in, back in the 20s and 30s when we were discovering B12 and, and the regime in the 40s when they made a mass production. Because they would give a shot once a month, they think that's the treatment protocol. And if you were really to talk to B12 deficient patients, you know, week two, three, they're going, whoa, I need my B12 shot. It makes no sense to give a monthly shot. They were treating the blood disorder, seeing when a person would start to get maybe anemic or macrocytic, what would hold them, because they didn't want patients coming in the office, like, you know, every week, et cetera. We need to teach patients, the ones who need injectables, how to self-inject, and the frequency needs to be increased. So a maintenance for injectable would be bi-monthly, twice a month, and then you can take the high-dose sublingual in between, so you get a constant um, supply of that water-soluble vitamin in your system. Mm. It makes okay. more sense. I mean, you yes. don't take a drug once a month. <laughs> I mean, right. granted, you're not going to die from pernicious anemia, but it's not good for your nerve health or how you're feeling. Huh. Yeah. So it makes no sense. Not only do we have a problem of diagnosing patients, we have a problem with the treatment protocol that needs to really be tweaked and changed. Mm. We have some serious, serious issues, folks, especially as we get older with B12. And so many people, as they get older, as Sally is explaining in her book, are talking about as we get older, people get a little bit dizzy, they're not steady on their feet, uh, they get a little vertigo, forgetfulness, and we'll just brush it off as getting old, little dementia, no big deal. As Sally is explaining in her book, these are some serious issues we need to keep in mind that when you lose your gait, when you get a little forgetful, when you start getting more dizzy, some digestive problems, it is very good for you, important for you to have these blood tests done. We have a caller. And the caller is, uh, caller, you're on. What's your name, please? And how can we help you? My name is Marilyn. Marilyn. Thank and you, I, Marilyn. And I have a question. Please. I keep telling my doctor that I'm at high risk for B- B12 deficiency because my mom had pernicious anemia. My sister has it. And I want to know if I have been using the sublingual once a day. Does that mean I have to wait eight months in order to get tested? Well, what's going to happen is because you're already on the sublingual, your tests are going to be normal, and they're going to say you don't have a B12 deficiency. So because B12 is so important for your body, you don't want to go off of it to to prove that you had a B12 deficiency. Therefore, you should stay on it. It runs in families. If you were symptomatic, you know, you probably had a B12 deficiency. That's why it's important to get tested beforehand. But You could also ask them to say, look, I've already been on the B12. My levels are going to be high. You could ask to see if they would give you injections to see if you, you feel better on them, that you could use both therapies or just continue to stay on your high-dose uh, B12. 
But, missed, you know, one thing... Oh, sorry, Marilyn, go ahead. I missed getting down the names of the three tests and whether or not ordinary doctors have access to them. Well, this is the thing. Again, if you're on B12, those other two tests will be normal also. Okay, okay. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So you can't go back in time and see if you had a B12 deficiency. The only thing that your doctor could test you for is to see if you have the autoimmune disease, where there's sensitive tests called uh, parietal cell antibody, intrinsic factor antibody, mm-hmm. and elevated gastrin. That would just tell you if you have the autoimmune disease. But you have to remember, there are several different reasons a person can have a vitamin B12 deficiency. Only one of them is the autoimmune um, pernicious anemia. Well, I have celiac, and I've also had surgery on my stomach. Uh-huh. Well, therefore, you... Okay, so... This is the deal. For you having pernicious anemia in your family, for you having stomach surgery, for you having celiac disease, you need to be on high-dose B12 for the rest of your life. In other words, injection plus sublingual. Right. But if, the, if you're not having symptoms and that sublingual is working for you, then the sublingual is going to work for you. And you can, there, there are many patients, if they were to take a good product, high-dose, five, you know, five milligrams a day, a lot of the times they can treat. They, their treatment could just be underneath the tongue, okay? Okay. So if you're doing well and you're not having symptoms, continue on the therapy that you're on. Yes. Those other tests have to be done before any B12, just like the serum B12. Well, I could, you know, I could hold off for eight months and, and then no, that, to get... that And that makes no sense because you already told me your risk factors. If you've had some, what kind of stomach surgery did you have? I had an Nissen fundiplication. What? That's hyaluronia. Hyaluronia, okay. Yeah. And I've had uh, a lot of esophageal spasms and all kinds of stuff like that, which I would like to um, find a real answer for. Well, now, then, you have seen having, you have having your hyaluronia fixed, that wouldn't put you at risk for B12 division. It would be like a partial gastrectomy from uh-huh. either cancer, ulcers, or a gastric bypass. That's when part of your stomach is removed. So that wouldn't put it, but the but having the celiac disease can cause a, a B12 problem. I would not recommend going off of it to prove that you have a B12 deficiency because you need B12 for health and prevention. Okay, so if I take 1,000 micrograms, uh, you say you need up to 5,000 a day? You can, depends on you how can. you feel. I mean, yeah, it is a water-soluble it. vitamin. Right, uh, so at least, at least 1,000. You know, and okay. a, a normal dose people take is 2,000. I personally take 5,000 a day. Right. under my tongue. And, and Marilyn makes you... Right. And, and I Marilyn, have pernicious anemia. So, okay. you know, everybody's different of your needs. Taking 1,000 to 2,000 is fine. Okay, well, I keep wondering. I'm taking all my vitamins. I'm doing all that stuff. Why am I still so energy deficient? And uh, how do I have all this pain in the fibromyalgia in my arms and stuff? Well, you have so, to remember, you can have numerous body complaints and problems from a whole bunch of different medical disorders. they got to check your thyroid, make sure you're not iron deficient. You can have another medical disorder. B12 is not a cure-all. It's just one disorder that we need to look at within the entire body to make sure that's not being missed. And you could, it would be fair to ask your doctor to say, look, whatever, how they're treating you, I'm still feeling poorly. See if they'll be willing to give you a therapeutic trial, the injections, to see if you improve. If you don't, you have your answer, but they need to look at other medical conditions or problems. 
Yeah, I have a lot of them, but they will not uh, consider the B12 because my blood test comes back normal. Well, because you're on B12, and it will come back no, normal. No, it, it did that before I started this. Okay, well, again, you could always even try, which I think is ridiculous that, you know, they're more willing to prescribe narcotics and other expensive antidepressants, antipsychiatric drugs, neuropathy drugs are very expensive versus trying B12 because you can learn how to self-inject it would be cheap, and you would be trying it just like you would try any other drug to see if it alleviates your symptoms. Or yeah. say people have restless leg syndrome, they're prescribed Lyrica. It's, you know, you could, you could try a uh, naturopath doctor. You can go online and try that. I, I think that's sad that you'd have to pay that money to go to one of them to prescribe it. Yes. But you, you could do that. Well, one thing that I would recommend also, Marilyn, if you are in the neighborhood, swing by the store sometime. We maybe can talk a little bit about your diet. What do you eat? Don't yeah. feel guilty, but uh, it's maybe good to over to get an overview. What do you do for breakfast? What do you do for lunch? What do you do for dinner? Are you getting enough protein? Do you get enough minerals? And also, when you take a B12 sublingual, make sure that you read the label that it does not say in parentheses, let's say a thousand micrograms, cyanocobalamin. You want not with a C. You want to have the one that starts with an M, methylcobalamin, from the myelin sheath, for the mind, for memory. That's the one we want to get. So the methylcobalamin is what you need. And the other thing is, like Sally Patchlock said earlier, make sure that you also take a B-complex with it. You don't just want B12 by itself. You need a B-complex and then a separate B12 under the tongue or the shots. So we got to run, but thanks for the call. I wish you all the best and swing by the store sometime. We'll talk about it. We're going to be right back. Let's talk a little bit, Sally, about the cost-effectiveness of early screening and treatment of B12 deficiency, as well as the, just the tremendous cost that we're talking about if this is not correctly diagnosed. Thanks so much for being with us today, by the way. Oh, thank you for having me. One thing I want to tell your viewers first, and we're going to go into cost-effectiveness, is that you know, tomorrow's Father's Day. When you go visit your elderly parents, et cetera, at home or in a nursing home, assisted living, Know the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency and see if they're symptomatic, if they need to get tested, and maybe accompany them with, to their doctor's office and make sure they don't have a B12 deficiency. The reason being, older adults are higher risk of B12 deficiency. We know in the literature, B12 defi deficiency affects around 48 million Americans. That's 16% of the entire U.S. population. Wow. Other studies reported to be 25% or 77 million. But older adults, the incidence is around 15 to 25%. So that's like 6 to 10 million older adults. And they've done studies in elderly hospitalized nursing home patients, and the, pre the prevalence was even up to 30 to 40%. Now, we know as you age, over the age of 55, you start losing the ability to produce hydrochloric acid. So... The reasons older adults are higher risk is because they have poor stomach acid production. They're on medications that can decrease B12 absorption. They have bacterial overgrowth of the small bowel that can cause a B12 deficiency. They're more at risk of having GI surgeries. They have cancer, chemotherapy, radiation. Some have poor ap appetites, malnutrition. They have other pre-existing diseases of the GI tract that can cause it. And they can have more dental and surgical procedures that we use nitrous oxide. Older adults have difficulty explaining their symptoms. Sometimes they minimize their symptoms. 
They could have depression, isolation, poverty, mobility limitations. So physicians commonly, the normal signs and symptoms of aging, they commonly mistake them as getting old when it actually could be a B12 deficiency. The 12 most common signs and symptoms of aging are identical to vitamin B12 deficiency, Mm. which are Mm. fatigue, weakness, dizziness, depression, the paresthesias, gait or balance disorder, forgetfulness, dementia, falling, anemia, syncope, which is fainting. And when you look at that, when you look at those signs and symptoms, what do you think that can cause a patient to to happen to a patient is that they frequently fall. Yes. And falls are the leading cause of death and disability resulting from injury in patients greater than age 65. So every 18 seconds, an older adult is treated in the ER for a fall, and every 35 minutes, a senior dies following a fall. And one in three seniors fall each year. So we think of people stumbling, falling, oh, you're getting old, oh, you should be depressed, oh, you should be a little demented. Always think B12 and make sure it's properly ruled out. So give your parent a gift of health this year, and when you visit them, call them on the phone, you know, Start questioning about the B12. Start questioning about their signs and symptoms. Yes, totally. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And uh, so well said. Now, as I mentioned, the... The cost. The cost is... Yes. Unbelievable. If you, if you, and, and again, we're talking here about the older generation because it is Father's Day tomorrow. But folks, if you're listening and you have younger children... The the diets that we're eating today are so deficient in B12, and young people do not think about aging. They do not think about uh, problems that they could pass on to the next generation, that it is important that you also talk to your children and say, you know, we need to get you tested as well, and that they have to go on B12. If you're pregnant, start taking B12. Make sure it is the right kind. If you are breastfeeding, make sure you get B12, that it is the right kind because you pass it on to the infant. And these are things that we need to be aware of because so many symptoms are covered up by taking prescription drugs, as Sally mentioned in the last half hour. It goes from one medication to the next, to the next, to the next. And that is why I regularly talk to people who say, I take about 9 to 15 medications every day. And why? Why is it? Are we really that deficient in the medication, or are we maybe deficient in nutrients? So, what can we do with diet, and what can we do with necessary supplementation? So, read the signs and symptoms. It's very, very important. Now, the cost, long-term cost of this, Sally. Give us an update on some of that. Well, you know, undiagnosed B12 deficiency does cost billions of healthcare dollars. Not only it affects individuals, families, the insurance companies, government, taxpayers, society. Um, when you think of, we see commonly patients coming through the emergency department who have fallen, and we've proven them to have a severe B12 deficiency. They have a hip fracture. And like in 2005, we spent over $19 billion per year we're, we're treat, treating injuries from falls. And they estimate by 2020 the annual cost of fall-related injuries is going to be $54.9 billion. And that's just for falling. But when you start putting in 
people who get um, dementia, if you start putting them into a nursing home, and say if it's from just from B12, and there's a critical window of opportunity to treat, or you can cause permanent dementia. Living in a nursing home is $60,000 a year. I could walk into any nursing home, any assisted living center, and find you a B12 deficient older adult. Wow. And it's a crime because we don't realize the money that's being put out there. So not just fall-related trauma. we got to look at dementia. Yeah. We have to look at the psychiatric uh, population. B12 deficiency does cause mental illness. If you look at when we prescribe antidepressants, they're over $1,000 per year. Some are $2,000. Uh, one drug um, I found out was over $5,000 per year. So our insurance companies are, are paying for that or you're paying for your co-pays. When in reality, if it's a B12 deficiency, that could be treated injections under 40 a year or under probably $120 if you're taking the sublingual. So if you look at the cost of medications, neuropathy drugs, dementia drugs, Aricept costs around $2,500 a year, and the men does a little bit less, like $1,300 per year, versus if it's a B12. And the problem is, if you have forgetfulness and you think, well, they got a little dementia, and you prescribe these dementia drugs, and it's really B12, you're losing that opportunity to treat the nutrient that's causing the dementia, and then you can cause the permanent brain um, disorder. We know that B12 deficiency causes brain atrophy. It's common that you can see that in CT scans and MRI scans. It causes the demyelination. You can see parts in the spine. So as a nation, we need to get together. Not only are we injuring people, but we're wasting a lot of healthcare dollars by using other pharmaceuticals, by institutionalizing people because of fall-related trauma, hip fracture, having dementia, having mental illness. For instance, in the emergency department, when people are suicidal or have like a mental illness, the psychiatric wards or institutions always send them to the emergency room to get medical clearance, and then we send them back to see a psychiatrist, et cetera. We should be screening for B12 deficiency, and I have gotten a group of physicians that do screen some patients, and there are many patients that have severe psychiatric problems that have a severe B12 deficiency. Now, not everyone does, but every patient deserves to have B12 ruled out. Not only would we be helping people, but we'll be saving a lot of money. Yes, <coughs> totally true. And I, I, folks, if you have the book, if you're going to get it, make sure you read the last chapter, chapter 13, The Cost-Effectiveness of Early Screening and Treatment for B12 Deficiency. And this goes for the elderly it goes for children who've been diagnosed as autistic or who have uh, a mental retardation from birth. It deals with people who have neurological disorders, MS. Over here it talks about some of the cost of MS drugs, multiple sclerosis drugs versus injectable vitamin B12. Some of these are $2,700 a month. So as Avonex, uh, beta Ceron. Copaxone and intravenous immunoglobulin, which is really expensive. And then you look at the cost for the injectable B12, much less expensive. Uh, Sally is talking about the cost of neurology visits, tests, and medications compared to taking vitamin B12, the cost of dementia, uh, the Aricept, uh, $232 a month if you take five milligrams. Uh, Exelon is even more expensive, one and a half milligram. 
it is $270 a month, which is $3,240 a year. I mean, we're talking about numbers that are staggering when you think about it. That means either it comes out of your pocket or it comes out of somebody's pocket. And if we're talking here about a health plan that is primarily promoted by the pharmaceutical industry and the American Medical Association right now, the, the Obama plan, then you realize that we cannot afford we cannot afford that plan. We we need to become proactive because we don't want to stand in line to wait for diagnosis all the time or for treatment and see if they actually want to help us. We can become proactive ourselves by just understanding what's going on. You know, Montana, again, it is one of seven states in this nation where you can get a blood test without going to a doctor first. You can just walk in an office. I mean, not any office, <laughs> blood draw office. And you can just go and say, I need to have this and this and this tested, and they'll test you for it. So it is important that we get an understanding about where we stand, then start the B12. If you already have been diagnosed with a B12 deficiency, you realize you really have a problem because the the levels, the, the, the range that doctors use today before they ring the bell, they say there is a problem, are very high. High. They just don't realize, or they are very low, I should say, so they don't realize that people have a problem. And uh, it's all explained in this book, uh, Could It Be B12? An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis by Sally Patrilock and Jeffrey Stewart. So uh, very important information. Yeah, I, I want your, yes. your listeners to understand, though, that we're not saying that B12 always is the cure for everything. No, no, but no. But they need to realize the signs and symptoms, the risk factors, and they need to realize that it could indeed be the problem, and therefore they need to get knowledgeable, discuss it with their doctor. If they have a doctor, they need to get tested. Just like we screen for diabetes and thyroid disorders, we screen for cholesterol if it's elevated, we need to be including B12 in our regular screening, et cetera. And it's not to say people go off their drugs, et cetera, but you have to realize you could be on a drug, that mimics B12 deficiency when it's really B12. We're not saying that it is, but you need to have it investigated. And again, as you said, we cannot afford not to rule out B12 deficiency because it's going to protect your health, your life, your own pocketbook, and the government and our insurance companies, et cetera. In the long run, we pay for other, you know, people that don't have medical insurance and for for society, we're going to go bankrupt. And B12 is one, it's it's healthcare, in my opinion, dirtiest little secret that we are not testing, treating, and diagnosing it. Mm. And then the patients that are being, that are misdiagnosed and there's actual malpractice cases because they're injured, we're, they're kind of being, um, they're hidden. They're, they're settled out of court. Therefore, the public doesn't know. And other physicians, they can't learn from others' mistakes because they don't know. Mm. And yeah, it's just, so. this is a disorder that's been going like for this for 20 years I've been working on this. Well, and like and you said, the research... programs like yours right. is really making a difference to get this knowledge out to the people. Plus, like you said, the information has been out for 100 years, but it somehow it is not being emphasized in, in medical, medical school. school. Exactly. And that's where you go, uh, folks, you go to your doctor and you realize that the doctor knows everything about you and you only have five minutes with this individual or 10 minutes, a half hour if there's really something special going on. But most of the time, you do not get enough time to actually explain all your symptoms. You almost need to write down 
write down on a piece of paper because most of us just forget what we were going to say. And no, so and, write it yeah. down what your symptoms are so you ring the bell with the doctor and say, please, I need to get this tested. Yeah, our book basically it has over 300 medical references, and we kind of made it like a case for physicians, for them to read, to say, hey, why aren't you testing your patients? Here's the evidence. Hmm. This is coming from your journals, not only just from cases in our own hospitals, but this is from your medical journals from the, from the last, you know, 50 years, and, yes. and especially even now. And, in fact, in the emergency department, um, we, in the last 10 years, we tested 2,786 symptomatic patients of all ages, and we found that 31% of them were either deficient or between that lower range, 200 to 350. That's that level considered normal but where people began experiencing neurologic symptoms and warrant treatment. Yes. I mean, mm. that's huge. And that's coming through the emergency department where their physicians are not, they're not up to date on B12. And we can change this as a, um, as a society. And you're talking now about old patients from young to old, or were you talking about the age of 20, over 2,700 no, patients? No, any age, any age. Any from, age. you know, from age one up to 100. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, and, and so uh, just to let you know, I know that the majority of people who listen to the program are over the age of 45, 50. So just to give you an idea that either you still have parents that are alive or you are the next generation, you are the older generation, these are some common drugs that can put seniors at risk for a B12 deficiency. These are the proton pump inhibitors for, uh, you know, the Prevacid, Prilosec, etc., the H2 blockers for heartburn, GERD, ulcers, like Zantac, Tagamat, Axis, Axid, and Pepsid. You got the regular antacids. Uh, you got uh, drugs for diabetes, like metformin, glucophage, Riomat, Fortamat, Glumetza, uh, Glucovans. These are all drugs that can put seniors at risk for B12 deficiency. Uh, drugs for potassium deficiency, things for gout like colchicine, uh, drugs for elevated cholesterol levels, uh, drugs for infections. And then here is a list of common drugs that can be misprescribed for the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. So here you are, doctor says, well, sounds like B12 deficiency, or no, doesn't know that, but he says, oh, these symptoms, yeah, depression, Celexa, Effexor, uh, Paxil, Prozac, uh, Tofranil, Zoloft, Welbutrin. Then you have the anxiety and panic disorder drugs like uh, Clonopin and Paxil and Valium and Xanax. You have your erectile dysfunction. We're talking about male and female infertility. So Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, so wildly promoted on both TV and radio today. So many men come in and say, we need, we need something. We got an erectile dysfunction. So what can we do? Well, these drugs can actually be misprescribed for the signs and symptoms of B12 deficiency. Uh, drugs that are prescribed for dizziness, imbalance, and vertigo. Drugs for incontinence, psychosis. Drugs for insomnia, like Ambien. You know, restaurant, how many people are on these drugs because they can't sleep at night? Uh, drugs like Ritalin for fatigue and Silert, tremors, numbness and tingling, and drugs for blood abnormalities, uh, the enlarged red blood cells. The list goes on. Sally Patchelak on her book, uh, Could It Be B12, An Epidemic of Misdiagnosis? All this is explained in the book, so get the book. I mean, read it and, and figure it out. Caller, good morning. You are on the air with Sally Patchelak. What's your name? How can we help you, please? 
Hi, my name is Catherine, Hi, and Catherine. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, I care for an elderly lady, and she just got Seroquel. Could you tell me a little bit about Seroquel? I mean, I, I can't tell you all the, I mean, what she's prescribed on it because of anxiety, mental, mental like illness in a sense. No, uh, early dementia. Okay. Well, again, anybody with early dementia, you have to rule out B12 deficiency. Okay. So half of tested. Do you understand why? Because you need B12 for the brain, for the neurotransmitters. A B12 deficiency can cause brain shrinkage. It's been known in numerous studies to cause cognitive decline. Even in younger people, it causes foggy thinking, forgetfulness. So can you imagine in an elderly person, it's going to cause the same thing we see in any age. And when you're older, they automatically assume that it's going to be causing um, that they have dementia or Alzheimer's disease. But there could be a medical reason. B12 deficiency is a medical disorder. So giving other drugs like Seroquel, anti-anxiety drugs, or to calm them down, you know, to make them more, like, sometimes people get psychosis. There's a whole bunch of different drugs that they can get. We have to run. I I really appreciate it. Catherine, thank you so much for the call. Sally Patrulak, thank you so much. All the luck with your work, and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right, folks, we will be back. Thanks for listening next week, Saturday, from 8 to 11. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.